Um, if you have a Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10 as we continue our chapter-by-chapter chapter study of this book. And, and just, just, just so you know, for the interest of full disclosure, we didn't hire Angela because she was living in Molokai for 11 years. Just in case you're wondering, the Hawaii connection had no place there. Actually, what was really neat was, as we were looking through our candidates, and we came across this resume that we said, wow, you know, running a preschool is pretty, can be challenging in the U.S., but, but that's relatively easy to running a preschool in some place like Uganda, right, where there's like no infrastructure, or a communist country, or a Christian preschool in a Muslim-dominated country like Egypt. Say, like, guys, we have got to talk to this young woman. So we have been really impressed with Angela and really excited about this new chapter of ministry that the preschool is going to have and our church. So just uh, if you see her around, give her a warm welcome because she's totally new to this community, just flew in from China, I think a month ago at the latest or at the earliest. So let her know that she's loved and part of this family. Um, as you're in 1 Samuel chapter 9 10, I, as we start, I want to ask a question or may, maybe a statement of, I, I wonder if God saying no to something that you really want can be seen as a sign of His grace to you. That God saying no is actually an evidence of His love. When was the last time you've prayed a prayer that went something like, God, that thing that I so wanted in my life that you didn't give to me, that I prayed for for months, maybe years, thank you. Lord, this desire that, that I had begun to, to organize my life around, to move towards this goal, and you, you didn't allow it to happen, thanks for looking out for me. God, thank you for knowing better than I do and, 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 and removing things that I thought I really wanted. Now, chances are uh, you probably haven't prayed a prayer like that. A prayer like that's probably not that common in our culture. We all live in this culture, and we can't help but breathe in the cultural air, and the cultural narrative of our lives doesn't run the way along those lines at all. As a matter of fact, in our culture, the value or worth of a thing, whatever that thing might be, it can be your house, your car, your new fishing rod, your guitar, whatever that thing is, or relationships, whether it's a friendship or somebody you work with or a romantic relationship, or even your religious faith. Our culture says that the, the value of, th- of something is in direct proportion to the amount that it brings personal fulfillment in your life. And so if, if that's the case, because after all, life is about my personal fulfillment, that's the cultural narrative we live in, right? And life is about actualizing my full tendencies and potential, that if there's anything that prevents that, how can that possibly be a good thing? Why would I possibly thank God for not giving me something when life is about maximizing my full potential and my personal fulfillment? So you see, that kind of prayer and thinking about God runs very contrary to the very cultural air we breathe. Now, by the way, that's a completely idolatrous way of thinking, but that's a whole other sermon. We'll get that at another point. My point is, can we say God saying no to me is actually a good thing? Uh, Now, I see some heads nodding, yes, and you're probably a mom or dad because you get it, right? Uh, you, You can see the wisdom in that. Mom, dad, can I have cocoa puffs instead of veggies for dinner this week? No, of course not. If you're in management or leadership at work of any sort, you can see the necessity in telling, saying a no to a good idea because you know other factors that maybe the person doesn't know. If you're aware of the, the, the sinful tendency of our own heart to deceive ourselves, you can appreciate the good in that. But 
even still, that does little to make it easier when, it, when it's your request, when it's your desire and it's your passion that goes unanswered. You know, wisdom and necessity and goodness are very hard to appreciate in that moment, aren't they? That doesn't change the fundamental fact that as human beings, we do ask for things that we shouldn't have, that we do want things that we shouldn't want, that we do attach our hearts to desires that are not good for us, and God, as a loving Father, gently but firmly says no. You know, we, we learned a little bit about why that is last week in 1 Samuel 8, because the human heart has a kind of ingrained predisposition to, to replace God from His throne and put something else there, to, to ignore His Word and to avoid Him. But if we continue to allow our lives to be formed and shaped by Scripture, we can begin to grow in understanding that no, it, far from being an evidence of God's displeasure, can actually be His merciful love to us, even if we really want something. And sometimes God will give His people what they pray for, right? Not, not because God's been worn down by their multiple prayers as if He was some badgered city councilman that has to open up another Starbucks in the neighborhood or something, but, but because God wants to communicate this important lesson that no actually can be a blessing and yes can actually be discipline. See, see, that's one of the central uh, points through the second section of 1 Samuel that weaves all through chapters 8 through 14. And, and as we come into chapters 9 and 10, we see this played out amazingly front and center as Israel has misguidedly asked for her first king. So even while God has granted their requests, and He does so as a form of discipline to His people, it is still an opportunity for him to display his love and his compassion and his care for his people in the midst of that discipline. Right? So what we have is, in 1 Samuel 9 and 10, God's amazing providential care that's shining brilliantly against this dark backdrop of man's presumption against God. So now you don't have to write this down, but just to kind of let you know how this, these, these two chapters are going to fit, we see this amazing mix and overlap of God's providence and man's presumption. Uh, these will be up on the slide, so you need to write down. In the everyday affairs of life, uh, we see it more directly in the way God gives divine revelation, and there's this direct defiance from the people of God. And then finally, in the first king itself. So in the way it kind of looks is it's this real broad God's providence, man's presumption, and just common details. And then it gets a little bit more specific about how God's trying to work with people. And then finally, as a real specific example in the, the giving of the king. So that's the way these two chapters look like. Let me pray to ask God to bless his word, and we'll just jump right into it. Pray with me. Father, we are very aware of our need for you in our lives. Father, even that is an evidence of your love to us that, that we're even aware, because there were times that many of us weren't even aware and there might be people here who are not even aware of their need for you. But Father, we're also aware that as we see and read your word that your care and your discipline are not mutually exclusive. Sometimes they're one and the same. Father, we pray that you give us hearts that are open, ears that are open, eyes that are open, that we might see and hear and believe things that are good for us, even if they might be hard. And we know you can do that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So uh, you remember we left chapter 8 last week with the ringing demand that they wanted a king. The people of Israel wanted a king like all the other nations. Well, immediately in chapter 9, we're going to read that God begins to grant their request. God provides them a king. Now, as we're going to read in a little bit, what seems to be very common, mundane, everyday life on the farm, looking for missing animals, kinds of getting lost in the central hill country, having conversations, giving up, kind of things, we're going to see God provide in a miraculous way, all these ways that seem so natural that no one would guess that it was all actually planned by the providential hand of God. Let's read. We're in chapter 9, verses 3 through 8, and then I'm going to read verse 10. Verse 3, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with them, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Verse 6. But his servant said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Skip down to verse 10. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So wait, how do we know that these, this, this interchange we just read, these events are, are actually part of God's providential care, that God is actually orchestrating these things? It seems rather ordinary life, just like the way we live, ordinary life. Well, for that, skip down a few verses and look at verses 15 and 16. Now, the day before Saul came, what we just read, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Okay, stop right there. So that one phrase where God says to Samuel the day before what we just read in verses 3 through 8, God says, I will send you a man, puts an entirely different spin on what we just read happening in verses 3 through 8. What seemed to be just kind of rather mundane, common happenstance events of life turns out to be the means by which God is in control, not just in control, but actually sets in the motion to have Saul and Samuel meet. The events that seem so normal on the surface are actually what God is doing to bring about His plan. Now, this is a lot like the Christian life. It really is. Now, it's easy to think that, that that's not the case, that God's, that God's providential care only extends to major biblical figures and major biblical events like Saul and the kingdom of Israel, but God's not really going to be worried all that much about all the details of my life. But the Bible says something. The Bible says that's exactly the case, actually. Look at Proverbs chapter 9, or 16, verse 9 on the screens behind me. It says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 20, 24. Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. 
How then can man understand his way? So God's care applies not just to a select few, a kingdom elite, but God's care applies to all the subjects in all his kingdom, to all the situations and circumstances, regardless of how common they may seem. Now, in reality, you may only see that kind of providential working as you look back on the events of your life, kind of like how probably Saul couldn't see that at the time. At the time, he was in the dark, just looking for donkeys that were lost, but God's hand was working to bring things to pass. As a Christian, we we simply are called to be faithful to the thing that God's calling us to do, whatever that might be, however, either heroic or mundane, looking for donkeys or whatever it is that God has put before you as His people. Knowing, however, that God's providential hand, it is always working. God is always up to something. But now here, here's a problem, and it's not with God's providence. It's with this presumptuous request for a king from chapter 8 where they say, we want a king like all the nations around us is what they asked, is what they really demanded of God. And right away in chapter 9, we get three indicators that God is answering their request in ways they had not even anticipated. So the old axiom, be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. And right out of the gate, the writer who's writing this gives us three indications that, that God's answering their prayer, but in a way they probably couldn't have anticipated. And here they are, and we'll unpack each of them. The writer talks about Saul's height, which is a physical allusion to Saul's real problem. Okay? Then the writer talks about Saul's inability to shepherd, which is a spiritual allusion to, Paul's, to Saul's real problem. And then the writer talks about Saul's spiritual ineptness, which is actually his real problem. So he talks about his height as a physical allusion to what's really the problem. He talks about his inability to shepherd people, which is a spiritual allusion to his real problem. And then he discusses what Saul's real problem is. We saw that all in verses 2, verses 4 and 5, and then verses 6 through 10. Let's unpack that one at a time. So twice this morning in our passage, right here, and then again in chapter 10, verse 23, the writer talks about Saul's height. Now, in our culture, we would say that this is an asset to Saul. Apparently, Saul is tall, dark, and handsome, right? But in, that was not the writer's intention here. The allusion to Saul's height was actually not to say that he was a kind of tall, dark, and handsome, towering figure. Saul is the only Israelite mentioned in all of Scripture, or, or his height is the, he's the only Israelite that his height is mentioned in all of Scripture, right? Now, I'm not against tall people, but I'm, kind of, I'm on the shorter side, so I kind of like this here. But that being said, you say, well, how important is that? So he was tall, big deal. Well, think about, remember, the writer is writing about all the events that took place and how they're significant in the lives of God's people. The only time the height of people are mentioned in the Old Testament is in reference to the kind of forbidding, intimidating size of the enemies of God's people that always kind of hijack them and restrain them from God's promises coming to pass. So think with me. In Numbers chapter 13, when the spies go out into the land and they come back, they say, God, fellas, the people in the land, they're, they're huge, they're big. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 10, when they're talking about the Anakites, these are tall individuals. 1 Samuel 17, Goliath the Philistine and others, they're all tall, they're all big. 
I, I can't help but say, Bart, this has nothing to do with you, though. You're a right-on guy. He's just a towering fellow there. The point being, though, every time height in the Old Testament is mentioned, it's always in a reference to those who oppose the people of God, and their height is this towering, intimidating factor. So the writer notices, makes note twice, Saul was tall. You remember reading that earlier, guys? Tall, big. Saul's that way. The second thing he alludes to is his inability to shepherd. It's no coincidence that we're introduced to Saul in chapter 9 in a failed attempt to find his, his father's animals. It's no coincidence. Remember, remember, the shepherd imagery was a huge imagery, still is to this day, in Semitic culture. Leaders were often looked to as shepherds because of the role that shepherds took amongst their people. So Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, Moses, even God the Father was looked to as a shepherd. The New Testament calls Jesus the great shepherd, the mighty, the chief shepherd, all these images because it was so important to be able to shepherd people. And it's very appropriate that Saul, however, is depicted as a shepherd who's just unable to do the job. Now, Obviously, I'm, I'm not a, a real literal shepherd. I don't think any of you are. And I don't know much about animal husbandry, but I have a dog named Napoleon. I've talked to you about, about a dog this big, or maybe about that big. And my wife and I know Napoleon's habits. We know our dog. When he has to get up, as he always does, at 2 in the morning for some reason, just to go outside and look at the moon and cruise in the backyard and hang out is what he does, um, we know his patterns. We know where he's going to go. We know how long he's going to be out. We know how he wants to come back in the house. We know if he's gone too long that we need to find him. And when we do, we know where to look for him. We know Napoleon. Did you get any sense from reading the passage about Saul that he has any knowledge of his father's donkeys? These are his father's animals. One of his responsibilities would have been to take care of the animals. There's no sense in the narrative that Saul says, well, I know our donkeys would have gone to graze in this pasture or gone to drink from this brook because this brook has sweeter water than that one. Or they would have grazed on that field because it's wintertime and it has better grass than this one in the spring. You don't get any those kinds of details that the Bible's always giving details. What you see from Saul, he's like he's out with his buddy just going for a stroll because dad forced him to find the donkeys and they're just... I'm looking around the hill country, don't find anything, so I'm going to go over to Zuf, and they're not here either, and then we're going to go over to Shalim, and I can't find them here. And they just kind of say, well, we did our thing. Dad's going to start getting worried about us. Let's go back. It's very clear that Saul doesn't have a shepherd's instinct. And the writer says this is a spiritual illusion, like his height was a physical illusion to the real problem in verses 6 through 10. Here's Saul's real problem. This future king of Israel had a profound ignorance of who Samuel is. Samuel, that area of Israel, the central hill valley of Israel, is not a huge place. Samuel lived near to Saul, and 1 Samuel 3.20 and 4.1 was very clear. It said all Israel knew Samuel because of his fame and his greatness was spread throughout the land. But Saul here doesn't even think about him. As a matter of fact, who suggested they should go see him? The servant. So Saul is completely lights out to the, the man of God. He's completely lights out, and there's this failure to even decide to seek after God. Even when Saul meets Samuel, by the way, he doesn't even recognize him. Look at verse 18 and 19. 
Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, so Saul's talking to Samuel, he says, tell me, where is the house of the seer? You can imagine Samuel looking at Saul and says, I'm the seer. Even when he meets Samuel, he has no idea who this man is. And the profound reality that in that moment of looking for the donkeys, it doesn't even occur to Saul to seek after God. Maybe it doesn't even occur to you to seek after God in the trivials. But to touch on my last point, if God is concerned about all of our issues, then even the little ones are of a concern to him. But Saul doesn't think, hey, let's go seek after the Lord for help. And this was a reoccurring problem in his entire kingdom. This inability to discern seeking after God rather relying on, relying on his own resources plagued his rule. And then finally, in chapter 9, verse 7, Saul's assumption that he had to pay for spiritual favors, showing total, a, a lack of knowledge about how this whole thing even works. So God was, in fact, giving the people exactly what they had asked for. We want a king like all the other nations. Well, here you go. Here you go, down to the size and height of the man. I'm going to give you a king like all the other nations, just like you thought you needed. The real tip, though, is verse 17, that we know that this is the case. So let's go look at verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Let me stop there for a second. Uh, depending on what Bible translation you have, if you have like a uh, New American Standard Bible or something like that, it has the word rule there. If you have the NIV, New International Version, the word they use to translate that, that Hebrew verb is the word govern. Okay? Uh, for those of you who have an ESV, that's what I'm preaching out of you, that's what most of you probably have, you see the word restrain. That's very different than govern or rule. What's going on? The Hebrew verb atzar that, that we have translated to these various words can, has, a, has a semantic domain. All words have a semantic domain, right? So, so, and they can be wildly different. So the word board can refer to a group of people on a committee or it can refer to a plank of some sort, right? All words have this range of meaning depending on the context. This word atzar has within it restrain, hold back, hinder, even imprison. So the core meaning of it, though, is this concept of holding back and constricting. So 2 Kings chapter 17 and Jeremiah 33, it's translated to imprison somebody. In 2 Kings 4, it's translated hold them back. Uh, in Genesis 20 verse 18, it's actually translated regarding the fertility of a woman that she's unable to bear children. It's been restrained, okay? Only here, only here of all its occurrences has it been translated as rule. So when they translated the, the ESV, the translation committee thought, this does not make sense because the ESV is a more modern translation. They said, why did we translate it as, as rule or govern? That's not how it's ever used. We need to translate this word as its core meaning, which is to restrain and hold back. Now, now you can see why the NIV translated the other way because he's restraining the people. Wait, he's, isn't he the king? What's the point there? The point is this. By using the one word, restrain, the writers are showing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Saul's kingship was being used to discipline the people of God. They thought this king is going to take us to the next level. He's going to set us free. That's not what's happening. This king is actually holding you back from the promises that I wanted to give you if you had faith in me. This is the man who will restrain my people. 
In this one verse, we have in the text evidence simultaneously of God's providence and God's discipline. I wonder, when you think about God, is He large enough that He can be simultaneously, graciously, mercifully, lovingly providing for you and at the same time through those same means being using it as a form of discipline? Is God big enough for you for that? Or does God always just have to be good, 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 good? Or when he's mad, 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 mad? Is he big enough that you realize he can be both good to me and disciplining me simultaneously through the very same thing? We have it right here. The writer to the Hebrews mentions this in Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, he writes, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Earlier in verse 7 of the same chapter, he says that God's discipline is an evidence of His love. There it is on the screen. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? God can provide and discipline us simultaneously. And we see that because God, it's in His nature to provide, and unfortunately in man's fallen nature, it's ours to be presumptuous. And so we see them coming together in everyday occurrences. And we also see it in divine revelation and this direct defiance of God. Let me read uh, back in chapter 9, verse 18 to 20. And Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will tell you, uh, I will let you go and tell you all that is on your mind. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. Skip down to the, the very end of verse 24. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I might send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And let me read 10, chapter 10, verse 1, going ahead. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed Saul and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies." And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And stop there. Chapter 10, verse 1 is a very important verse. You pick up on that, that. That God's instrument of judgment on the people for their idolatrous request was Saul's kingship. But it was also going to be God's instrument of mercy to his people. That he would actually save them from the enemies of their land. So we see again the simultaneous, I'm going to be a blessing to you because that is in my nature to bless, even though you've been reacting sinfully, but this will be a discipline to you, but even in the discipline, I will bring deliverance to you. You see, while God saw the idolatry in Israel's heart in her cry for a king, we saw that in chapter 8, and we'll see it again a little bit in chapter 10, he also hears the cry of distress that they so need and need of relief. It's amazing that God can both simultaneously see our sin and be able to also see that in the midst of our sin and sometimes that we've committed, we are also been sinned against. And He moves simultaneously both in mercy and discipline 
Even Israel's determined sinfulness cannot thwart God's amazing compassion. And while God will not allow sin to go unaccounted for, He still acts on behalf of His people. And this is thematic all through chapters 8 through 14 that we're studying together. Now, each time, uh, this is why I love our reading services, because you pick up on things that you don't sometimes when you're just looking at one chapter at a time. Each time, you notice in the reading service, the people of Israel gathered. It was idolatrous. Their, their requests were crazy against God. But every time that happened, God followed it up with mercy and, 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 and action on behalf of his people. Let me show this on the screens. So in chapter 8, we see that assembly that we looked at last week where Israel rejects God and requests for a king. And then right after that, there's this action that God provides a king to deliver them. This is part of what we were looking at this morning. Later on in, in chapter 10, we see another assembly. Whoop, can you back up to chapter 10? There we go. Uh, another assembly where Israel rejects God in verse 19 of chapter 10. And then immediately, chapter 11, God delivers the people from the king Nahash. And then finally in chapter 12, we have yet another assembly where Israel rejects God again, two times, verse 12 and 17. And then the, our section closes in chapter 13 and 14 with God giving them amazing victory in battle. Consistently, the people of God gather and they reject God and He consistently shows mercy to His people. Let me read it to you, chapter uh, 10, verse 9. And I'm going to jump down to verse 14. So when he, Saul, turned his back to leave Samuel, God had given him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. Now skip down to verse 14. Now Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, well, please tell me, what did Samuel say to you? And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he didn't say anything. Okay, so we, we zoomed out to talk about the macro look of 8 to 14 and, and Israel's tendency. Now we're zooming back in to Samuel. Keep in mind, up to this point, nobody knows in terms of the nation that their new king has been selected. This has all been kind of a private affair, quiet affair. Right now, it's now going to come out public. God is going to make, through Samuel, make it known who the new king is. Look at verse 17 of chapter 10. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Now, I just want to point out something else. The similarities between chapter 8 and what we just read in chapter 10. Notice the wording in chapter 8. This is the same pattern. In chapter 8, verse 6, Israel requests a king, more like demands. And then the next verse, Israel rejects God. And then the next verse, God recounts his deliverance. Notice this pattern, but in reverse in chapter 10. In chapter 10, God first recounts his deliverance in verse 18, then there's a recording of Israel rejecting God in verse 19, and then Israel requests for a king again at the end of verse 19. What's the point? The point is this, is the writer is really trying to drive the point home that God's people have a tendency to reject God. 
And he does it through something called a chiasm. It's a literary device. This is why Scripture is so amazing just as literature. What it means is they have these propositions, A, A, B, B, C, C, and then you have the simultaneously same propositions but in reverse order. So you have A, A, or A, B, C, then C, B, A. So it's the same thing as A, same thing as B, but in the center is this statement C. If you compare chapter 8 and chapter 10, at the center of this chiastic structure is Israel rejects God. The writer's trying to point out after these two chapters, to be clear, your request of a king, the central theme is that you are rejecting God as king. And finally, we see God's providence and man's presumption as seen in Israel's first king. Israel's first king. Verse 20 and 21 of, of chapter 10. I think the irony is, so, so at this point they've been gathered, Saul, Samuel's talking about a king, that they realize that they have this king, but the problem is the king's missing. Look at verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Okay, so Saul, Samuel says, you're king. God is choosing the king. He goes through the process. It's, it's Saul. Where is Saul? They can't find him. I think it's more than coincidence that the writer ends this section of Scripture the same way he began it, but kind of in reverse order. It starts with Saul unable to find the lost donkeys, and it ends with Saul himself unable to be found. There's this, this writer's constantly trying to give hints of a precarious time coming to this nation, and it's just the writing's on the wall if they could only have the eyes to see it. If you keep going with the metaphor, at first, the shepherd can't find the sheep, and then it ends with the sheep unable to find the shepherd. The irony is so thick in these passages that the, the nation, the people of God, were hoping for this king to bring them security only to realize that their king is actually struggling with insecurity himself. We know that because God says that they were, that he was hiding, right? He was hiding. They had rejected God so that a king could lead them, but they had to depend on God just to find out where the king was hiding from them from. Look at verses 22 to 25. So they inquired again of the Lord. Um, so is, is there another man still to come? Because uh, we don't see Saul anywhere. Is, is there another man? And the Lord said, behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. So again, another word that you can be translated gear, supplies, containers. Doesn't matter. God says, um, the king that's supposed to lead you is hiding amongst the gear over there. And you would think the people of Israel would stop and go, wait, what? When the king's hiding? No. Look at verse 23. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. That's right. And all the people shouted, Why were you hiding? Nope. Long live the king. They didn't even stop to think, wait a minute, you're, why were you hiding from us? They say, long live the king. So blinded for the desire of the thing they want, the facts that they presented themselves didn't even matter. They said, long live the king. You know, the next few chapters of the book of Samuel only equates to just a couple pages in our Bible, but it's many years in their lives. It would be decades before the nation of Israel would get a king after God's own heart. 
The point is, God may not always give us what we want. We may really think we need this. We may think this is what will give me life. He will not always give us what we want. But we know because of His grace, we're never going to get what we really actually deserve, right? We know because of Christ, we've already been given all the resources we need. The real question is, are we going to trust the King or are we going to presume we can do better? See, the people of God are always, people, people are always looking for a king, right? Especially in, in, in uh, this season, political season, presidential, everyone's looking for we're look, a president king. Use whatever you word, want. People are looking for a savior to make the wrong things right. So we just looked at thousands of years ago, a different culture, different people, but the human heart is the same. When the pressures of life come in, when the anxieties fill us, when, when real legitimate situations make us feel like we need something, the pressure pushed them to ask for another king. Not externally, they still kept their formal religion, but in their hearts, they were looking for something else. Right? Do we look for another king? If you're not a Christian, are you looking for another king to make everything all right? And that king may be a non-king. That may be a king that your king is, I don't want to have to think about it. Your king might be, I just don't want to have to think about how life is. But that's your king. Because it's whatever it is that you look to to make things okay, that's our king. And the Bible and all the kings of Israel either serve to compare or contrast to the true king, Jesus Christ. The only question we have to answer is, I'm going to make him my king, or am I going to make myself or something else my king? And we have to make that choice every day. To choose for Christ is not a one-time decision. It is a daily decision because we want to bow the knee to the king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. Your word, as we saw last week, as we've been seeing for weeks, we saw this morning, gets the human condition. Yes, the, the window dressing is different, but the human heart is the same. Father, thank you that in your great love, you love us enough to actually tell us no. Even though we think we know what we need, give us the grace to recognize that we don't. Give us the ability to grow in trust that you do, and give us the confidence of your character that you do all things for the good of your people. We see that ultimately in that you gave Jesus Christ. Father, we see even Jesus himself was told no, that there was no other way other than for him to shed his blood so that a people may be redeemed. So, Father, thank you for telling us no, and pray in Jesus' name, amen. The message titled The Providence of God and the Presumption of Man was given by Pastor Rick Roadheber at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. This message is part of a series from the book of 1 Samuel. For more information and resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.ccclh.org.